Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. So Patricia, tell us how, you're, how you've been so far. My partner and I have been looking to adopt a, a dog because we wanted, um, you know, like some sort of like emotional support animal. And we were looking, um, the whole adoption process has been really interesting because every single kind of application to adopt kind of gives you some questions to ask. And I think a lot of pet owners um, don't realize how much you should consider um, and reflect on your actual needs and what would be the best fit. Kind of like the same thing as grad school or when you're looking for a job. Fit is everything. And also, you know, uh, compatibility is really, really important, especially if we're having like pets who use different kind of ways of communicating. Um, you really have to like start learning how you know, your pet talks and how you work, because although the breed can tell you, you know, the basic generic kind of behavioral patterns or things that you should look for, how to train them, it really depends on the, like, kind of like people, it depends on the person, you know, like they may be completely different. When we were adopting, uh, we were just, you know, having it really hard because it looked like everybody was applying to adopt because they're at home. And so, now I think the trend was to adopt a, a dog. It took a while. It was like job searching, definitely every day trying to find the right, you know, pet, trying to get as much information as we could to the website. Um, a lot of the pets were already adopted. It's like, it was, it was pretty hard to, you know, get a pet that wasn't already adopted and kind of like job posts. Once they post it, they don't update that someone else has already taken. But, you know, every single adoption center has their own thing. And this would be my first pet. So when we started adopting, we got approved for one application. And we immediately somehow that day, that same day, were able to get an appointment to go to the shelter to go visit. You know, you have the option of for that specific shelter, you had an option of selecting three different dogs that you saw on their website so they can present it to you that day of, of your appointment. So you're supposed to actually take anybody in your family that lives together. And they also ask everyone in their household, like, why are you getting this pet? Is everyone okay with getting a pet? Is this pet going to be a present or, you know, because there is a trend that if you get a pet for a present, they most likely will end up in a shelter or some sort of like in the street and stuff like that. So they really want to make sure that these pets are going to the right places in like the homes. And so everyone has to go and be present for that time to introduce yourself to the pet and see if there's compatibility. And the three dogs that we wanted were not available when we asked. So it was like a roller coaster of emotions. And then once we told them a little bit about what we wanted. I think the main person wasn't actually present to the interview. So, or the, not the interview, but it's like the, the meeting. So we got at a volunteer, I'm thinking, and she was just kind of waiting and stalling for, for the other person to be available. But I think they had a whole family there to, you know, as an appointment that ran a little bit later. So she actually um, 
said, well, the dogs that were that, that you asked for didn't have any. She's like, is there any other dogs that you'd want from the website? Boys were like, well, we had in our mind, you know, that these people were, we didn't get a chance to look at the website. So once the person went in the back and just looking at all the dog files and stuff like that, that they had available, she's like, I'll, I'll bring you three dogs that I think would be a match based on your application and what you're saying. And so in the level of experience, so they actually ask you if you've had prior experience with how many dogs and what breeds were they, how long did you take them? Why did you not have them anymore? Do you still keep them? And also the kind of training that you've done or that you're, um, that you are knowledgeable about. So I didn't know any of that stuff. I was just like, this is very interesting. I just kind of looked it up like basically. And then uh, she introduced us to um, our, the pet that we ended up adopting, her name is Luna. And she is a Husky mix. And so it was interesting because she's like, if you've never had a pet before, you can't get Huskies because Huskies have, I mean, they're cute and all, but they actually return them or end up in shelters a lot because of trainers not knowing how to train their behavioral things. Um, they're big escape artists. They like to help. People don't like that. They don't realize like who, what you're like, what kind of breed or kind of dog you're adopting. And there's like unrealistic expectations. And I think that was like pretty sad. It was like, these people are not willing to go out and either hire a trainer, can't hire a trainer. And also the vet costs too. Like some people, especially if the dogs are not kept with vaccines, igual como like la gente, like they end up abandoning them in the streets. So it ended up being like Luna is completely different from what Huskies are. are. Um, she doesn't howl, she doesn't sing or like talk. Like they, they, they usually have, a, they're very talkative. Um, they don't bark, they like howl or, or do like noises. Um, but she does have some behavioral like things in terms of like the leash and wanting to be playful with other dogs. So just learning a lot and following a lot of TikToks on how to train dogs because it takes a lot of time to get used to their kind of like communication styles. And, and just normally, I think it's it's been interesting to see that when you adopt just like, you know, any other species or animals, living being, they'll need some time to adjust. So they did mention and recommend that you need like three months to get the, have the dog get used to you. And sometimes you need even more depending on what, what dog you have um, in your lifestyle too. So it was just nice. It was a big fit. Um, she's a pretty active, which is what we wanted a little bit active, but also she's very calm and quiet the rest, the rest of the day. Um, and other than that, Besides dog training and basically learning how to work with dogs, um, just been really excited that a student got back to me. Um, this is a student that I've been working for like for three years almost. And she just got offers to teach at a school unified district. So she came from two years ago, not even knowing what graduate school options she had to now like getting offers and really excited to just like jumpstart her career. So it's been a really amazing seeing her like coming in as a new transfer student um, back when I worked with her to now like seeing her towards the end and just like being able to see the growth and just like her confidence and being able to get this things done is amazing. And just um, really hoping that I get to have more experiences like that with the upcoming students that I have because we are launching 
a whole new at my work, um, kind of like a mentorship program to help students uh, who have who are close to getting into probation but not quite there yet, um, to be able to help them just like make goal settings, whatever they are in their life. It doesn't have to be academic, but just to help them just like be able to navigate you know, different things to get them to where they need to. Because I think just the final push and motivation really helps students just drastically improve and just having someone who can write them letters of rec or things like that. I'm like, it just will help them. It's kind of like an internship. We're just providing a platform for students to just build a rapport in their support network, which is really hard when you don't know that that's something that you need earlier on. So it's been pretty exciting um, just to like, finish the semester, although it has just sort of started. And I'm looking forward to, you know, what's to come, especially the summer and the conversations that we're not getting about opening up campuses and the opening plan. It's been interesting seeing just like how everybody else is just kind of like, we're ready to like open, but one thing can't open without the other thing, um, especially with uh, colleagues that have parents who are parents who have kids I'm like if their school district isn't opening that's really hard for every one of us to do this I'm like I'm pretty sure everyone hasn't been vaccinated like all these things that need to happen in order to reopen safely and have like a quote-unquote normal college experience is really not going to take place anytime soon especially for campuses that are not prepared already um like now, like they're, they're just, it's not, there's no infrastructure enough to open safely or completely. Um, and even then there's still, my campus is thinking about opening 30%. So 30% of the student population, 30% of the faculty and staff to be on campus. And I'm like, pues, como están las cosas? <laughs> I'm like, no, it's just really hard to like have to come to the decisions that, you know, some of the leadership are making and forcing a lot of people to, to go back uh, to work as opposed to really thinking about the safety of everybody. And also the, all the decisions that a lot of students have to make, um, especially in the Bay Area, like a lot of students are like, I don't live in the Bay Area or I live at home and I don't want to have to rent or find some housing so far away. Why can't I just finish this stuff? And there's some benefits and you know, some sacrifices I need to make because of this virtual setting. But I think a lot of students would benefit so much about learning and virtually learning if we all had made it a positive experience to begin with. Um, they wouldn't be complaining. A lot of frosh or first year students would not be complaining about wanting to become, to go into in-person because my assumption was, um, and I've told this to my colleagues, I'm like, my assumption is they had a terrible, seeing from how TikTok students have been posting, like high school stu students have been posting about their experience virtually. Um, it has been a really, really negative experience where they've been really criminalized even further in a virtual setting. Um, it just came from today, an event that I was, uh, that was hosted by the Human Rights Institute at San Jose State, where we had Dr. Angela Davis speaking and uh, the, you know, the participants were saying like, it's no longer the school to prison pipeline is a zoom to school pipeline where a lot of students have been policed extremely on whether they have to have the camera on how much homework they end up completing uh, the fact that they have to you know do certain things that are just outrageously um, 
just inaccessible, um, especially where, you know, you know, not everyone has internet, all these things that we are talking about, we are not handling things with the same resources, especially right now. Um, and they're being asked to do so many things that are just unrealistic to not only their age levels, um, but also their capacity under a pandemic to, to function. Um, and everybody, right? Like, there's just so unrealistic expectations for teachers to do so many things without, you know, the lack of the support and also getting paid. I mean, not all of our Wi-Fis are not getting paid for sure, much less being able to grade and do all these things. Like, it's just, um, it's unreasonable, definitely. And, and I think um, coming to this end is just now Frosh wanting to go in person and all the rest of the, the, the student body has been actually, no, I actually prefer virtual because I can do so many other things in my time. And I have seen, you know, some of my faculty friends say that they've seen a lot of their students working and Zooming in at the same time because they have to answer. They're either working from home doing like the, what is it called? Like the, when they're answering the phone calls about like, um, customer service so they're working customer service jobs where they're answering the phone um, and they have to like pause it and not do their homework they have to work you can see them working at home or something because there's some faculty that require them to have their cameras on and things like that I'm like these are you know students that unfortunately if everyone doesn't do their job to like try to support the students it just makes it harder I mean our center is working really hard to meet with students and try to make a realistic schedule where both they either complete the school requirements and also at the same time perform well in those classes. Cause that's another thing is that if they're not passing the classes then there's no point in taking so many of them. So, you know, that's some, some thoughts on this semester going especially on potentially another fall semester that's gonna be either hybrid or fully online. Um, these are just continuous issues that we, you know both on the faculty and staff side have not been creating uh, creative and positive experiences with everybody involved. I agree. I, I now at UC Davis, they're also looking at spring doing it hybrid the quarter they're on the quarter system and students have been emailing me asking me if, if I know when we'll go back to in-person learning or go back to campus because they need to figure out their housing situation. Some of them tell me that they're living with their parents, no sé dónde, and they would prefer to not have to move to Davis, right? So it's a lot of things, and you're right, that no pueden hacer una cosa sin la otra, and I feel like every time they, like, I hear that, oh, we're hoping to start in, you know, go back in person in the fall, I'm just like, good luck with that, right? Because I'm part of me is like, you know, les creo. I'm like, you guys don't even know what you're doing for the summer. Nevertheless, the fall. Nevertheless, trying to vaccinate everyone and not not even considering the fact that not everyone's gonna want to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And not everyone can um, get vaccinated in the timeline that they want, right? Mm -hmm. Like because. If we're thinking about administrators and faculty, most of them are probably getting vaccinated because of their age range, right? right? And, and so when I'm thinking about all these conversations and I was talking to my, to my colleagues today and I was telling them, I was like, well, for, you know, for me, in, in terms of my timeline, I'm like, I haven't gotten vaccinated. And even then the vaccination isn't the solution. I mean, 
-hmm. we've been having discussions about creating a four to 10, which means four days of the week, we work for 10 hours each day. And I'm like thinking, pues si vamos a ir en persona, right? Like this is the hypothetical that, you know, some of us will be trading off days on where we're going to go work in person. We only have to work four days a week, which means the three-day weekends, like all these like positives, right? So I won't. But I'm like, when it comes to actually, you know, thinking about the practicality of it, I was thinking, voy a tener que like commute for two hours potentially, right? Because I don't know how big the traffic will be or the parking lot and, and things like that. Or if I'm going to even commute from work from home, like through my car or using public transportation, like I, I have no idea because I don't even know what kind of commute schedules will be out there, right? If you're taking public transportation or what the restrictions will be then. Um, and so we had to need like a mask on for about 10 to 12 hours for one day or two days. And then where am I going to eat? If I have to eat probably breakfast, lunch, and dinner, if I'm going to be working 10 hours throughout the day. Um, el lugar donde tenemos, it has not very good ventilation. Um, how many of us are going to be on campus if it's going to be, you know, students, you know, are we going to do the same thing as grocery stores where we're cleaning after each student? Or are we going to do like the patient when you go to the doctor, they put in the sheet, you know, in, in the seats? Are we going to have to like switch that out? Or when is the janitor staff going to come in and do like deep cleaning? Or who is even going to do deep cleaning? Um, if we're going to work 10 hours, when is the janitor staff going to come in realistically to do the whole intense cleaning stuff? Si tengo que ir al baño, how many people are going to be in the building, not just us, right? And because we're in a location where there's classes happening all around us. So if they were to, you know, build up 30%, it's still like, that's a lot of people going to the bathroom in the same place. Um, who's going to eat? Like, are we going to be expected to eat in our cars or in our offices? Like, this is just too much work and so much draining from going, especially for people that are, you know, introverts. That's just so much you know, interaction with people. Um, and it's not an easy transition for us to go from home working our hours to like then full on doing like hella hours throughout one day. And how many breaks are we going to need? Personally, for me, I'm like 10 hours. There's very, there's going to be less productivity because of how exhausted people are going to be and how long, if we're going to work from Monday to Thursday, we have a three-day weekend, we're going to spend three days without responding to a student, right? And so you're thinking about, I'm thinking about all these things, and I'm like, it just doesn't make sense for us to do this. Well, we don't have to. Um, and the students probably won't benefit it from it either, because they're just going to be less, you know, accessibility for them to actually go into person. Even my colleague was saying that students couldn't make it to appointments, especially if they work um, from home, or they had to go to work and things like that, because they work at the same hours that we're open. And by the time that they get a campus and try to find parking, their appointment is gonna be done or they, you know, we're no longer open. So at least with virtually, they can either answer a question or hop into Zoom really quick during their work break, algo así to like be able to even, you know, access us. So it's just a lot of things that I'm like, we don't have herd immunity enough <laughs> for us to even start thinking about that. and. You know, people who are working or people who have kids, people who have been, you know, taking care of their younger siblings or if they're living home and contributing to their family, like a lot of these things that you're mentioning, like 
if people are not working or they don't have a job, how the hell are they going to go and, you know, try to find a new place to live, new area to go move to, <laughs> classes to have to pay for, um, parking to pay for, gas, transportation, you know, there's just so much logistics in terms of trying to make sure that everyone feels that they can have a well-established plan for them to do well for the fall too, because it's not going to be easy for students to, if their classes are half hybrid, half virtual, then what's the point of going to campus at that point? Because how are they going to fluctuate or, you know, accommodate for all the needs of those students when not every professor is going to be in campus. So therefore, I mean, I might as well do all virtual, like, you know, it just, at the end of the day, it goes back to still in the fall, definitely just do whole virtual and just prepare for a whole new year for the spring of 2022 or even winter to, you know, at least have some sort of plan of having us all go back, you know, because for a lot of us, especially with leases, that's also a tough thing to, to break or start something new. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's for, for UC Davis, they're going to do a staggered return for staff and they're hoping for to have people on alternative schedules starting in June or July. And I'm just like, uh, first of all, <laughs> I'd love to get that vaccine before I even think about moving and going to in-person. And even then, it's not likely that we'll be able to meet with students in person anyway. So what's the point? Right? Yeah. And, and seeing how much, you know, students have been who have actually reported a positive cases have been because they've been living in campus on campus. Mm -hmm or have been in contact with someone on campus, like the people who have contacted it, it was the staff that were working there, the faculty there, um, and the under-reporting most likely that has ha occurred. Y como he dicho, like the vaccine isn't this, this, this all solution, all like, all the things that need to happen in order for us to feel comfortable going back. Um, it's, it's just kind of like eye-opening how much like everyone is like trying to find shortcuts for all the CDC guidelines and all the people that are experts in in this in public health and how many of us uh, have not been able to access the vaccines just yet enough for us to create some sort of like I mean the timeline right because it's you know you take the first doses in one thing and then you take the second dose in the other um, and just because three companies may have some sort of vaccine by the summer doesn't guarantee that, you know, we've had enough time to see the results of those vaccines or, you know, the benefits or, or what are some, some things that we still need to work on because of distribution, right? If this, the first wave of people who got the vaccine haven't been able to get the second vaccine on time, then they get the sirve because you haven't reached the optimal level of immunity or effectiveness of the vaccine that it should have because you didn't have enough doses to give to the second the second dose, right? So all these things, right? And people still, <laughs> we were talking about, it's like, remember those appointments where people were sick? Like a lot of students are sick and they have to still go, or the peer mentors or the student employees are sick, but they still have to go to work because there's no sick paid leave, you know, things like that. 
I'm just like, oh, like, you know, you get kind of scared because it's like, all right, is everybody else going to wear a mask? Because, you know, there's still people that still don't wear it properly, one thing. And then the second thing is they don't wear one at all. So that's the hard part of being able to control everybody or not control. It's like more like educate and make sure that everyone knows to do it well. Yeah. And, and their definition of well is going to vary. Right. So um, even now that no one's on campus, I, I get these notifications about people possibly exposure on campus and a certain building. And I'm like, if that's already happening now, I can only imagine what it's that it's going to multiply once we're back. So I, I'm just like, you're all crazy. <laughs> just like leave the students, you know, give them something, give them like a definitive like expectation of when they'll return so that they can plan accordingly. They can't be, you know, planning quarter to quarter, right? Um, it's not, it's not healthy for them. They're already overwhelmed by their courses and even faculty right now, they're like, um, I, one of the students shared today that, you know, that the average in one of the physics or um, I think it was a math class, I don't remember, was a 50%. And I'm like, and that the professor was still considering whether or not he was gonna drop, no sé qué. Mm. And I'm like, that's not, we're in a pandemic, dude. Like, why is this even just, why is this even a consideration? <laughs> it should be, you should be a little bit more lenient, a little bit more understanding that the students are not operating the way that they would be in a, you know, quote unquote, normal year, right? So the fact that their content is just not very engaging, right? That was a great opportunity for them to switch it up, do something different, get some training or something in order for it to make enough sense for people to understand and make it different where you have to improve on your teaching skills if people are failing to that point. Like you're the one structuring the syllabus, right? Like you are the one in charge. <laughs> of picking and choosing what kind of things need to, or what kind of materials like, right? Because every single, you know, course requirement has some sort of objectives and you get to determine how you're going to meet those objectives and teach the same way that I have done for years and then complain that students aren't engaging while they are trying to understand you. Uh, I mean, it's just like this huge disconnect between the instructors and also the, the students and the reality that both of them are living because I'm like, you as a faculty are getting paid a whole different thing. You have an access of different resources than these students do. And especially for, you know, state students who even more so have chosen it because of, you know, the much more affordable, still expensive four-year degree. And even then, like, it's still a huge burden to to have the students have to teach themselves like any other classroom like if you were in person the difference is that you actually would be able to talk to students maybe you know to try to get some information connect with older students who have been through the same thing engage and participate in different clubs where at least are sharing and contributing to all this information um and not everyone is tapped into like the different channels that people have created like discord they do like Twitch, Reddit threads, like all these things like that they're connecting. Not everyone is that social media savvy to even know where to find, uh, to be able to share this information that they would normally get in person. And it's just so unfortunate that it's, it's made it a worse experience for students without having to need to. Um, 
And unfortunately, the people that are really good at teaching aren't the ones teaching those courses for them to be successful. And how I'm mentioning, I'm like, I'm learning way more from, again, TikTok, Twitter, social media, even our guests and and our podcast, like learning so much more than Mm -hmm. the actual classes that students are graded on to get their degree. Um, Even more so like those, como estas diciendo, like the science STEM courses that a lot of undergrads aren't taking where they definitely need to pass in order for them to get their degree. I mean, there's not many options and who's teaching them. And even even having struggling students, you know, where in a normal environment, they would be interacting with their teacher informally or the teacher would notice that that student isn't, you know, maybe doing well, body language, right? But now they have to set up appointments and quien sabe cuando, and by then maybe it's too late. You know, yeah. to interact with the faculty and, and share what's going on. Yeah, it's just, it's, you know, too much, too much responsibility for a student to handle at that, at that stage. Responsibility where, and burden. Burden, right. And penalized. I mean, that's a part, like they just get penalized even more so for just not knowing how to, how to move forward with, you know, all these issues that they have to, because they're probably dealing with this on their own and which is the unfortunate part. Um, I can't say that every center, every faculty, every department is handling it in the same way for sure. Um, there's definitely huge gaps of how people have responded. And, and I've just seen that a lot of people have been projecting a ton of the stuff that they're experiencing, mm-hmm. right? They, they just don't have, they haven't emotionally regulated enough to try to handle this in a more helpful, sustainable way to, for every single person, because I'm like, just like how, you know, adults like to project a lot of things, same thing, a lot of departments are projecting all these like negative things. Um, instead of just thinking, oh, who's the one in charge? Oh, guess what? It's you. You're the one in charge and you get to choose how to react and what to move forward because um, it goes, it circles back to them and how they're responding. So if they're having not so great responses from students, it's because they don't know how to handle a lot of these things mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a manner that speaks to their level of like competencies. I'm like, oh, I know how to identify this and how to solve it. Um, now this, so in, in ownership of the fact that they're creating more burden than anything. Right. Uh, yeah. And so Ariana, tell us how, how you've been. Give us an uh, insight of how this past month has treated you. Um, it's been, it's been good. I, like I mentioned in the last episode, check-in, I started the new job. So there's lots of learning, lots of training, um, typical for, for a new position. Right. And, um, especially in a field that I, it's not mine, (laughs) the science, the hard sciences is not my forte. Um, but within that, I got good news. I got accepted into UC Riverside's PhD program in education. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, especially after, you know, now looking back and into the conversation I had with the uh, professor and we, we talked for a good hour. Um, um, her and I connected on just the experience of being minorities in this field and just um, how long it can sometimes take, right? And so her as a professor applying to, she mentioned applied many times and to many positions and it took her about a year, if not more, to land the job she's at now. So 
that was reassuring, <laughs> you know, and she said, you know, uh, it's not always, you know, it's not you as the student, it's the faculty, it's what goes on in the in those grad admission committee. So, so that was helpful. And um, I guess I wasn't expecting it. I was telling my friend earlier that I were so, so used to being denied. <laughs> she and I have been on this journey. Um, she's applying to law school and I've been applying to PhD programs and how it's like weird to get accepted, <laughs> to be told, oh, we want you kind of thing. Um, especially as a first gen Latina, you know, and, and been on this game for the past four years. And, and um, but every year, you know, like Patricia, you mentioned last time, it was, you know, I've built on, you know, every year something new. And, and um, my professor, one, a pro former professor from Sonoma State and I talked today, because I also shared the news with her and she was like, she's like, I had to call you. I was jumping up and down of excitement that you got in. And, and she was saying how, um, just how, you know, I've done different things every every time and and she asked me what I what I was what I got involved with and I told her you know I was a teaching fellow last semester at Harvard and I'm working with the immigration initiative at Harvard and I joined this research group and at UCLA so she's like yeah like that all makes a difference right um, so she's really excited and we just talked about um, just you know like what the long process and just old professors that were that we have uh, connections to, and she's like, you should tell so and so, and you should tell the other person. It'd be nice to hear. So, so yeah, so celebrating that today and waiting to hear back from the other schools. Um, so, a ver qué pasa, and you know, I'll have to decide by April fifteenth where I uh, where I'll end up going. And we had a conversation yesterday exactly about this, about how, you know, when we both started, you know, this whole PhD application back in the days, um, like just reflecting back and seeing how different it is to be on this stage now, especially for you, like applying so many times and um, looking at the gradcafe.com or is it .com, right? Yeah. And just like, seeing how everyone just gets the news and how different it has been through COVID applying this time or this round. Um, and just wanted to say like, congratulations, Ariana. I knew you were <laughs> going to get into a PhD program. It was just a matter of when. Right. And also for you to own up like all this huge experience that you have and just making sure that you write it all in there. And it's unfortunate that we have to spend so many years having to prove right. Ourselves. that it's like you do know what you're doing you do you know know what you're doing and that you had to do so much extra research for it mm -hmm. of course it comes to you know a benefit to do all of that you know beforehand but I, I want to point out that it's unfortunate that we have to spend all this much time trying to refine while you could be doing that in the program like that is the whole point of going to a PhD program is to refine and reflect with more guidance from the institution that you don't have to know everything uh, beforehand, but you do have to do some research and understand mm -hmm. that. It's unfortunate that the schools just want to cut out the more and more and more, the people who are extra first gen, just so they don't have to teach that to them. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the whole point, right? They only accept one or two people. You have to hope and dream that the people that you're interviewing with understand where you're coming from. 
and that you you know the fact that you had this really great conversation interview with that with that potential advisor mm-hmm. for the PhD program and she went through the same thing like that you know gives us some sort of hope that more you know in the field especially in higher ed how elitist this field is can have some sort of more more people in that position where they extend the opportunity for students who do reflect really great life personal life experiences and can really dramatically change how the research and the in the field go to and what matters and what Mm -hmm. kind of skill level is an actual asset right exactly and i think that that made a difference right i made it a point to, to let her know that this was the first time that I got this far with regards to the PhD, you know, application process, getting an interview, um, just so that she would know, right, that um, I don't have the leg up, I don't have that privilege that other students she might be considering do have. And, you know, she it basically her my future is in her hands if she wants to make that difference. And, and also, you know, we were talking just yesterday, too, about Grad Cafe and how it's a it's a good and bad place to be because then you're seeing like whoever gets notices that they got accepted and then you check your email and you didn't get it or whatever. But they also share really good tips, right? Like, especially when those students are in those programs and they're like, oh, you know, this, there's this, there's that, like really good resources. So you just have to like basically um, skim through all of the, the comments and, you know, use it as a resource if you want, but definitely just search grad cafe and the school that you're, you know, waiting to hear back from and you'll, you'll receive updates there. Yeah. And it's a resource, but also it's not the whole, you know, the whole thing. It's not Mm -hmm. going to dramatically change your whole life or your direction. Um, And I would argue that I think the self-reflection that you did actually came to much more of a benefit than all this like advice that you kept hearing, because at the end of the day, you were trying to really reflect como, you know, the, applications for adopting dogs, you know, or the whatever the case, right, you have to be very honest and truthful to yourself of exactly what is the kind of experience you want to go to and what kind of program will be able to reflect that professional growth that you're willing to go to. And if you're not honest with yourself, and you're just going towards, you know, living the life as the monedita de oro, you know, it's, it's just really hard, you can't look at the grad cafe or any advice that other previous grad students do and try to replicate that just to appear aesthetically that you fit because that's why you have a ton of students who feel miserable because they're not very honest with the intention and also be able to reject the schools that just won't fit that mold just because you're so desperate to get accepted. Right, exactly. So yeah, definitely to all of that. And um, yeah, uh, for, to anyone listening, check out our resources. Patricia created this great Instagram post uh, about the differences between masters, PhDs, and professional degrees. Check it out our, on our um, Instagram page. And yeah, it's a helpful resource just for anyone who's starting out and thinking and considering, you know, um, graduate school. That's something that that's a great start students is to really know and understand their options and what they're going to because a lot of these degrees is just again not a right fit for you and your lifestyle and to really think about what do you see yourself doing long term and just the fact that you did an undergrad it doesn't mean that you have to do it again in, in grad school and I think that's the biggest mistake students make is that they treat grad school as if it was undergrad when in fact it's 
completely different. Anyone who has been a community college student knows how drastically different it is to once you go to a four-year, you can't, you know, treat it and do the very same things you've done before. You can transfer a lot of skills, but you're going to have to upgrade those skills to meet your new environment. Um, and I think that's, again, one of the big assets that you we have as first-gen students, as, you know, immigrants, like, learning how to adapt and change and just trying to figure out the setting you have that skill already except now try to you know address it in a non-survival mode where you're panicking throughout it's like you're trying to get to the thriving part which I have recognized now that you know I've seen Ariana you've been you know applying to uh, grad schools like just owning up to this empowerment position that you put yourself in. It was like, no, I'm the, I'm the expert in this thing. Or I, I actually do know certain things than before when we were all like, pick me, pick me energy, you know, right. <laughs> this time it's like, I'm picking you just as much as you picking me, you mm-hmm. know? Definitely, definitely. But yeah. So, um, it is, um, it is about fit, right? In the end, like you were saying in our, our conversation before, like you don't want to end up at a place where you don't have faculty support, but you do have funding, right? You also can't have it all, but you need, you know, as students or people are considering choosing programs now, um, it is definitely what is going to support you in the long term. Um, and I think if you're going to survive, uh, the PhD program and your dissertation and all everything else that it takes. Um, it's definitely important to also find a good um, advisor and faculty support that will, you know, help you not only during, but after you get your PhD. Yeah. And knowing that this place is, you know, you have to treat grad school as you have to understand the setting, right? If the setting is functioning in a scarcity mindset, that is what they're pushing you to think. Um, you can still thrive in, in an abundant, you know, mindset. And but you have to understand that it's like they're going to push you towards thinking that you can't have it all. Well, you can. It's just a matter of making sure that you have a great support system with you and, and understand how to defend yourself uh, when it when it comes. Um, and that they're gonna have to, they're gonna try to push you and think that there's not enough funding, there's not enough this and that. And unfortunately, when you get into grad school, just like anywhere else, once you are finished with your first stage of undergrad, you're just gonna have to push, push, push. Um, and if anything taught me from today's uh, event that I went to with, again, Dr. Angela Davis is, she never did anything by herself. And I think that is a huge, lesson for any of us is like, you can't expect, and she's like, you can't be wrapped up in this delusion that you're the only one that can do this kind of thing. And I think that was beautiful because it's true. There, there's no such thing as you're the only person in this earth. And especially thinking how many people are in this earth and how centric we are to, you know, how much we want to center ourselves individualistically, how much we want to center the US, how much we want to center our nationalities, all these things, right? Um, All these governments. You can't think that possibly one person out of the billion people that live in this earth can only do this job. um, And you can only work at it by yourself and you can only carry the solutions that, you know, higher ed or whatever your field is in, you're gonna go in and solve it. 
um, that's not true. And that's not really how it works in the world and it's not sustainable. So definitely when it comes to fighting and all these things, you do need to have a team on you to be able to, to work things out. And how I told you, Ariana, the sum of the packages are going to tell you, you only have a really great, amazing first year. And then the rest of you are like, oh, well, ni modo, no hay nada after this. You kind of had to figure things out. But how we mentioned, referring back to um, our episode with Pablo, like um, the funding is a lot of things for us, especially coming from low-income families or growing up uh, being low-income, but it doesn't mean that it will be everything. And, and I've seen that mentorship and whoever is in your advisor committees or well, in your campus, I mean, it doesn't have to be the department, but definitely the campus um, is going to really make it or break it for you. So although you may need to fight for funding or you need to apply for funding, uh, you maybe just have such a great mentor because you also have to think about not only before you get to the actual program, you have to think about the outcome after too. Um, what kind of program or positions or people are gonna be able to work with you and try to advocate for you to get to the next stage. If your whole idea is to you know, become a faculty in the future, then you have to have a really good team that knows how to help you get to that next stage. If you wanna go into a research think tank, teaching at a different teaching or R1 institution or whatever the case, um, working at a different, whole different job and industry, then you really have to just have people that are very supportive in that. Um, and recognize that, you know, being a faculty isn't the end all be all for PhD students as like your ultimate career, like you peak there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so many things to consider, right? And um, definitely great suggestions and points that you've made um, because it's not going to be easy, but hopefully it'll be worth it. Yeah, we definitely have to announce that Ariana has gotten into a PhD program <laughs> because then Ariana is going to tell us all. <laughs> yes. Now our, now our podcast is switching gears on our direction of like what, just like how we are evolving and learning, you know, we're not going to be stagnant and always talk about master's or undergrad. Um, we can, you know, refer back to it, but now Ariana is going to talk to us about what it's like to be a PhD student throughout the whole time through, through your lens and your observations. Exactly. And whether or not the school mat, I'd recommend it, <laughs> but that will be in the future. I think it's um, all of us have been saying, no, I don't recommend it, but also like <laughs> every single school. Um, it, it's just, again, how you want to use that school to like what you make out of the degree um, as opposed to what really that program is going to do for you. Exactly. So now let's uh, introduce our next guest, right, Buddy? Yes. Um, and today we have a special guest uh, for today's conversation. Her name is Yareli Castro Sevilla. Uh, her pronouns are she, her, hers. And she is a PhD candidate in American Studies at the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. Uh, Yareli is an immigrant, uh, is a migrant from Culiacán, Sinaloa, Mexico, who studies broadly 20th and 21st Latinx history, migration, and diaspora studies, cultural studies, Latin American history, with an emphasis on Mexico and gender studies. Her proposed dissertation takes a migrant-centered approach to explore Mexican 
Espacios de Sinidad in Sinaloa, that is Chinese Mexican cultures, customs, migratory processes, spaces where they built communities and their transnational ties. In her free time, Yareli enjoys listening to banda, corridos, and alternative rock, watching novelas and other binge-worthy TV, cooking, and dancing. So welcome, Yareli. How are you? Thank you, Patricia and Ariana. Thank you all for having me. And I'm doing well. Uh, pretty hot in Southern California. So I'm staying in for today until later on. Yeah, and okay. can you um, both tell us how you both met? Wow. Yareli, do you want to share? How did we meet, Ariana? I feel like it was such a long time ago. Probably at an event of some sort. I honestly feel like we've known each other for a long time. Exactly. Um, like I didn't really thought about it, but you're right. Like I can't pinpoint to the to the to the specific time where we met. I literally feel yeah. like I've known you. Yeah, yeah. It seems like uh, we both share the California experience, right? And we were both at Harvard, and uh, we connected naturally at at Harvard at some point and then just became friends um, since then um, we've been to a few events together right and you've definitely been such a uh, an inspiration for me to pursue my own PhD and apply and go through that whole process and um, been a good um, person to uh, brainstorm ideas and review my statements and so I'm really grateful that you you're you're doing your PhD journey and are also making yourself available to help others as well. Thank you. You know, I think it might be on Docu Allies, like that first meeting. Uh huh. I That's think it was that. But, but we've yeah. been in too many places together too. Never <laughs> them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, Yareli, can you tell us more about your migration story and why did your family migrate to the U.S.? Yeah, so I was born in Culiacán, Sinaloa, Mexico, as you've said before in the introduction. And there I lived with my mom and my sister. So I essentially grew up in, with a single mother. And I don't know what you and Patricia know about Culiacán, but it's like not the safest place, even though a lot of kind of like a lot of the things that are known about Culiacan are not positive. There was definitely a lot of times of like violence and being subjected in the media about killings or cartel violence or essentially any bad stuff that happened in Culiacan. And actually as three women, my mom knew that there was definitely an economic downturn and that she wasn't making enough money. And so she made a decision for us to migrate and we ended up migrating to Pomona, California, which is in Southern California. And kind of like the rest of history, she just literally packed everything up and we ended up moving into a completely different place, um, new language, new culture, and just had to you know, start all over. So I definitely thank her for all of that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, it's important to um, look into because we've we've been as Diana and I are taking a Latinx 
an immigration course. I forget the exact mm-hmm. title of it. Um, but it's interesting to see like the way in the conversations about um, immigrants, especially coming from a highly you know known place where it has like a negative stigma and negative context to it. And that it's like, yes, there is violence, but it's like, that's not the only cities that have violence in it. Um, I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of violence in general. And to think like, I mean, what extremo is the violence that we're trying to like really think about. And when you do say Culiacan, I mean, there's a lot of images and things that people say, but I think violence mm-hmm. in general, it could be so contextualized in a larger place. And especially in this podcast that we mentioned that like, what is violence and abuse actually are found in place prestige, you know, and I think that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, especially on how mm-hmm. we stigmatize a ton of people, in particular immigrants, where we look at our home country, our home city, or the cities that we relocate in. And the violence mm-hmm. is, I don't know, from your perspective, like how was it, you know, transitioning into Pomona, California? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think also that is, or we'll talk about my research later, but that is definitely one of the things that I study on, like, why do people fixate on cartels when they think about Culiacan? And to me, it was more once, I think once I got to the U.S. and then I kind of like established myself in Pomona, I definitely saw the parallels of the people of color that migrated there, but that had been there for a lot of for a lot for a long time because I think of the people that I went to middle school with and high school and they were all people of color to be honest and so it shows uh the places where people are kind of like creating communities and then the places where people are arriving to after they migrate and so to me once I was in the U.S. it was really important it was really important for me to talk about Culiacan right, not just as a place of El Cartel de Sinaloa and El Chapo, but to me about the real reasons or the other reasons why people migrate and that has to do with the environment and climate change. Like literally people that, when I talk to Sinaloenses, they're like, yeah, like my parents can't get um, jobs in agriculture anymore because everything is drying up and it's too hot. And tomato, which is the crop that is kind of like the, the thing that grows Sinaloa largely, they can't do that anymore. And to me, that's kind of like a narrative that people don't talk about. And I think it's important for me to talk about it, right? Like, and also when I when I got to college, one person asked me like, did I know El Chapo? And um, then I was just kind of confused as to why, like all Sinaloenses just have to know El Chapo and we all have to be associated with it. And to me, that just shows that I, need, I needed to say another narrative about Lacan and the people that come from there and why they come from there. Mm-hmm. So with that, um, you you uh, migrated to Pomona or to California at an older age, right? Um, yeah, I was 10 years. And you lived a portion of your life in Mexico and, uh, you know, the rest of your life here in the U.S. So you mentioned that people would ask you if you knew El Chapo. What other things or how was that transition for you? As a as a young adult, as a as an adolescent in in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think because I came to the U.S. and then I did become undocumented, it kind of shaped the way that I view things because I was older, and I think my parents a lot that they always told me what it meant to be undocumented. 
So I never got to a point where I was surprised about being undocumented and what it meant for me generally. I always knew that I couldn't be open about and that it put me in kind of like a liminal, liminal position and in limbo. And that also led to me to really do my research and the reason why and learning about why people migrate. And literally like textbooks and reading and learning about other places like Puerto Rico, Latin America, generally places like Guatemala, Nicaragua, and the, the role of the U.S. and us migrating. Because I think about like specifically, I always bring it back to Culiacán, like who are looking for drugs, right? And who has criminalized drugs in this way? And a lot of it does come from the U.S. Um, and so I always just wanted to know why I migrated, even though my my reason of migrating is a little bit different. But I knew we from specifically from Sinaloa and Mexico and other places, we all have our unique stories of why we migrated. And I wanted to get at the root of why people do it and why my state as at large, there are reasons for migrated. And I found that a lot of it has to do with agriculture. And that is something that scholarship and academics don't really talk about. We only think about drugs and cartels mm -hmm. and violence. And there's another hidden layer that people aren't talking about. Yeah, and it's like they, the context and the conversation later becomes an individual and state thing. So when we're talking about what are the real issues about reasons why people migrate, they talk about just the violence in Mexico, right? And Or just the violence, in particular, the, the area that you, you're from and you grew up in was basis, but we don't talk about the corruption and the conversations about government actually being the mob in these like these situations. Um, I've been watching uh, these Netflix shows right now um, and documentaries, um, and I actually shared it with Ariana. Show was called The Search. Um, I'm not sure if you've if you've seen it um, yet. Ali. I've started to watch it, but yeah. Yeah, but a lot of it does get at the corruption that you were talking about. But yeah, talk about it more. Yeah, and it's and it's like instead of like focusing on, let's say, like all these cover-ups, all these like negotiations that the there are governments, local, national, federal, international, like they're they're creating these. I think that's the reason why, like, as immigrants, we kind of ask ourselves, like, why did our family do it? What happened? What is going on? Because we are detached. I mean, especially you as an older, um, an older migrant, child migrant. Um, it, it was interesting how, like, you were able to see a little bit longer in Mexico, right? Like, your your relationship and your mm -hmm. ties uh, as growing up. But you end up discussing, like, why do we have to move? Like, in my in my case, like we moved a lot in our, from apartment to apartment and we would go visit Mexico. And my question was always like, uh, and I always thought that everyone, that was their norm. But as we go and grow mm -hmm. older, we start to see that that is not the norm and the experiences that people have. And especially when we decide to go to college, we end up feeling alienated because we're like, we're, we're in a particular conditions and are growing up in our relationship to our home country. And the reasons why we end up migrating are so different. And even the longer you go to, you know, you, the universities, you end up seeing like, oh, like a lot of people don't actually do this. Although a lot of us actually go through it who are immigrants. Yeah, right. So uh, Yareli, pursuing a PhD is no easy ordeal. 
how and when did you decide that you wanted to pursue this path? I actually thought that for a long time that I wanted to be a lawyer, um, but I quickly changed from that. And I think honestly, the ultimate decision came to at UC Irvine, I'd had really amazing mentors, like um, centers that were actually historians. And they're the ones that I saw kind of the kind of research that they did, the way that they treated students and that they actually wanted to be real mentors to students. Mm. And I just decided that I, because after I graduated from college, I was still undocumented. And honestly, for a lot of a lot of my decision did come to with I can't I felt that I couldn't really go into the work field right away because I didn't have papers. Um, and so I wanted to think of something long term that would allow me that, that will help me along the way. Um, and so I decided a PhD is about, you know, anywhere from five to seven years. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, like fingers crossed, I would get my papers somewhere in that time. And then that will give me time to really think about what I wanted to do after I graduated. So in a lot of ways, it definitely was one of the, those moments where I, that it was kind of like me getting time, getting time for me to reflect. And I knew that there was something that I could do. Um, I remember writing an undergrad, writing uh, different, my thesis, different research papers. And I thought that this was something I could do. I knew that I wanted to write about why people migrate. Um, and I knew that I had a different take, a different perspective, because if you really think about a lot of the professors, even though I had two amazing women professors who were historians, most of my professors were like white men. And I, I know that I could do a better job of helping people who are undocumented, who are women, who are people of color. And then I know that I can bring a different perspective to academia. That that most people won't have right like that, that connection to being undocumented and writing about undocumented peoples um and writing about like women that do this type of work i want to write about my peoples from my perspective as an undocumented person at that time and who would you say are some of the faculty that stood out to you in your journey at uci for anyone who would like to look them up and with them or further into their research oh. I had a lot, to be honest. <laughs> but good. my two femters were Anita Casavantes Bradford, who is a professor of history and Chicano Latino studies. And and then my uh, my other mentor who has helped me just so much along the way is there who they they pushed me. They pushed me into thinking in different ways, into becoming a leader, into like never staying quiet. And that is a lot of the reasons why why there was a really good community of students at UC Irvine because of kind of like their help, but also of us being able to talk about the real issues that were happening at UC Irvine, which oftentimes was not the most welcoming for undocumented students. So definitely shout out to them. Um, there was there was just a lot that my different bosses there that helped me connect with students and just become a better person as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was um, reading on their uh, website that they highlighted highlighted you as one of their um, successful students. So I guess my question to you was, what made you true? I mean, I, I, I can assume part of it was the mentorship that you had, but um, what made you triumph as a, as a student at UC Irvine? What was your motivation behind, as they described, 
enacting real change in the way the university approaches undocumented students. And they highlighted with your new plan to delve into the history of immigration and, and share immigrant stories with the world. They described you as surely challenging the status quo for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's that's a lot. And it says a lot about the relationships I built and the mentors that definitely have carried me along mm -hmm. the way. And to me, I think myself as a freshman, I used to on campus kind of like very naive, um, thinking that just change would just happen. Like literally now, into some friends from undergrad and you see an undocumented student center it has a food pantry um a coordinator it has all of these people that actually they help undocumented students for me it's just interesting to see like they all highlight you all and then they claim the work that like oh this is you know this is a university effort these are all the, the resources that we have but they did it didn't come an idea from them though it came from exactly. students who needed these services who were like, why don't you, like, you should be responsible for this. You should. And then, it, I mean, the services that they provide are bare minimum, to be quite honest. It's food pantries that don't offer a lot of the actual resources or cultural food or, you know, it's not full holistic help and equitable care that students should have that, you know, that, that the experience that students should have based on, all the stuff that you all contribute to more in the university than, than by the, the other way around. Right. I mean, and I think, yeah, it's, I think you, you're totally right because now you like UC Irvine boasts the pantry and then the, the center, but they don't really highlight all of the work that went into making that happen. Mm -hmm. All of the meetings, us having to interview people to work at the center, um, Actually, like having to be really cohesive and collective to really demand what we what we wanted to get accomplished. And that really had to do a lot with us doing a lot of work, to be honest. And it was a lot of work and it was literally four years of me being there. But a lot of the work that had been done way before me. Right. Like it's probably like generations of people who were who were really demanding the center and other sources that came with it. So yeah, you're right. Like we need to be acknowledging that it is student labor and specifically undocumented students who were organizing constantly to get all of the stuff that we have now, which you're right, it's the bare minimum. But I do want to give a shout out to Andrea Gordillo, who is the director of the food pantry um, at UC Irvine, who's amazing, formerly undocumented badass mujer, who literally organized all of this. And it would be interesting to see if, I mean, when we're talking about accountability, um, imagine them posting and creating like a, a part in their website about accountability to really state what has been the timeline of reaction of the university themselves. Like what was the pushback, like being very authentic and saying like, well, this is part of it, but this is how we actually reacted towards this, you know, and, and how long it actually took for it to, to happen until it was sensational conversations about, oh, we're actually losing money. Now we have to actually, you know, see what is happening. And they had all these task force. I mean, I don't know why they take so long to investigate these things. Although, the, I mean, it's been happening this whole time um, about mm -hmm. students having less resources, less money, especially when they're trying to enroll a lot more first-gen students, low-income students. Mm -hmm. Like it's bound to happen that they need basic needs, you know, but um, 
and the basic needs, I mean, was due to a variety of public interest. Right. Yeah. And it was really weird. I think it might be a little bit of a sidetrack, but um, like the repression of student leaders that was happening at UC Irvine. And now that that Michael Drake, who, be, who, who had just be, who just became the new UC president, was the chancellor at UC Irvine while I was there. And literally, like, he had files on student activists, on us, on the things that we were doing. They were literally spying on us. So I, it, it just really, it just really, I can't help but think about all of the intimidation that we suffered, the racism that people suffer, the discrimination, and all the bad things that happened because we were in the middle of Orange County, which is super conservative and honestly pretty nasty in terms of the people that would go on campus and that were allowed to, like, talk about literally anything. Um, and so just like a super side note about him and literally a lot of the intimidation that we faced as we were really, as you say, like we were demanding for like literally the basic things that we needed, especially for undocumented students, right, who I think need more, need more help, need more resources because some are, some have DACA, but others don't have DACA, they can't get paid. And then you have to think about loans and then you always have to think about uh, professionalizing, which is something that like I'm not too comfortable with, but some people still need it, right? Like they want to know uh, what opportunities they have, what jobs they can have, how they can proceed after college, because sometimes a degree is not enough, especially for undocumented people. Darn. And I was skeptic of seeing the new chancellor. When I saw the news, I was like, this, this, this person has to have something, something that, you know, you know, was either violent or was repressive of other students of color and now you've confirmed it so I'm like every single time I see like someone in new leadership I'm like trying to look up like what was what was happening uh with a lot of these students and especially as you you've coming in with such a that's the that's a terrible thing is that when you come in as a new student having all these hopes and dreams that you want to focus on really yourself improving yourself building up and then along the way you've had to face all these issues, all these no's, violence, for you to get things done. And yet you've been able to somehow, some way get to the PhD, which a lot of students can't say, right? Right. And yet, Evie, how has your experience been similar or different? You're a PhD candidate there. It has been very challenging. One, Boston, Massachusetts is not the easiest place to be especially as someone who comes from a really heavy ethnic studies background and as someone who studies immigration and surprisingly not a lot of people in GSAS, like the graduate school of arts and sciences there's not a lot of like a, a, there's not a lot of um people that study immigration which is really a surprise of course there's not ethnic studies program um there is almost very diverse. Uh, there's not a lot of, of professors of color, and when there are professors of color, we retain them. It has been challenging, but I think I really do think that in these spaces of feeling uncomfortable is when I found what I want to study. I've been able to like reconnect with myself. I've been able to meet like badass people like you, Ariana, who are at Harvard, right, in a really decentralized, white, rich space like really racist space uh, but what have been able to make uh, and have been able to find community and 
community for us when that community is not made for us. So, um, why did you, with that, with that, what you just shared, why did you decide to pursue American studies at Harvard? What, what other programs were you considering? So when I applied, I stuck American studies, which is a field that I just discovered, um, and history. And but history is really white and really male dominated um, and very constricting. And so I started doing a little bit of research on American studies program. And I found I just like the interdisciplinarity and I found the flexibility of being able to do any type of research. And it doesn't have to be through, like, I don't have to do history in American studies, which is, which is what I think it's amazing about, I'm currently thinking of doing a project that is history, anthropology, sociology, and all of these things together, which would not be acceptable in a history domain. So it was more about searching and the, the research that people are doing in American studies, the different professors outside the boundaries of departments and disciplines. Um, but I think it just allows me the flexibility of do the, the types of things that I want to do and the types of things that I want to study through different lenses, through different ways of essentially like knowledge, through different ways of learning that aren't the typical. Like I'm able to go and do my own research and if it's in American studies because it's so flexible. Yeah, I'm also really excited to be an immigration fellow through the Immigration Initiative at Harvard um, and just honestly learn from other immigration scholars um, that also that are from very different topics and disciplines and to just be able to learn together. Um, I am going to hopefully present my so what I'm going to write about for my dissertation. I'm hoping to present that in the fall. So I'm really excited, but also really nervous for writing on that. Um, because it means that I have to kind of like hone down and be specific about what I'm going to write about in the long term, mm -hmm. which is really terrifying. But I'm also really excited to kind of get all the knowledge that I have and kind of like myself on paper so that people understand what I'm studying, which completely changed. Well, I think one of the things that we have to kind of think about is not creating a lot of assignments for a lot of students that are busy work. Uh, and being very mindful about really utilizing the time and space to change our, our curriculum and making sure that students are up to date and connect with the work on a personal level. I mean, a lot, a lot of the classes that I've had are very like theoretical and out there. And I think this is a time where we're able to our students in the personal, um, especially related to topics like um, immigration or anything that's like a big trend like this we really need to start focusing on our own personal values instead of because I think that that's where a lot of students mask themselves or even professors let's talk about this exterior thing but not really internally think about um, and that's just based on my because I was telling Ariana I'm like it's just different when you major in ethnic studies and your perspective is very very different like whenever you're in a classroom especially in graduate studies I think it's just I've seen a lot of this where a lot of disciplines theorize and start like talking about the outside and you know you always get those comments about the devil's advocate and so I think that's the part that frustrates me to no end because yeah. I studied ethnic studies it's a whole different environment when you're in your upper division 
only ethnic studies, like only, only the majors are usually typically there. And you have like all these engaging conversations with like the profe or profa about like, or profex um, about all these things. And it's just like, when you hit a class and even teach a class where there's not predominantly like people with an ethnic studies background, it's a very different environment where, I mean, ethnic studies does like, and I think some classes and some professors in different, different discipline, but I haven't seen it as big in, in general as, as ethnic studies does is where we center the individual and the individual beliefs and positionality where we discuss, like, it's not about theorizing. I mean, some might have that, but the way that I was taught in my practice was it's you, you are talking about it. Talk about I statements, talk about your own thing. You can theorize and everything, but we also had to talk about the practical implications and the personal lived experience, because we're not theorizing something outside of us. We are talking about our own selves and reflecting about our own experiences and sharing it with others. Like, what we're researching, what we're reading, what we're doing is us. So mm-hmm. when we're talking about this, we're not hypothetically thinking about an immigrant person, like this arbitrary person that we don't know. We are us and they're sitting next to us. So I think that's a whole different classroom dynamic that I don't see in a lot of different classrooms, which is can be very violent space in an online platform. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But I also think that kind of like that thinking also comes from people who are and they do this research because I'm thinking of a lot of people that I that I go to school with and I, I sit in a class with and they have like no real connection. Right. Because then they have they yeah, like they when they talk, it's violent. And to me, I think that what has been one of the most like, impactful things about being at Harvard of the way that people perform, the way that people talk. And it's literally just theory as you say. Theories that are there, right, that are written. One, that they're not accessible theories, right, because sometimes they're really hard to digest and really understand them. But also that, as you said, like, why can we we be the ones theorizing? And I think this is the thing, like Foucault and other people who just do these theories and that we have to know because they're they're really important to the field. But, like, why can't my mom be the ability to be published? But because people wouldn't take her seriously, like you have to be on paper and you have to write about a certain way to be th- to be taken seriously and to be thought of as a theorist. But the thing that I write about all the time and what like Chicana Chicana writers have write, have read, written about is like being an intellectual. Like to me, I think of my mom, I think of my parents, I think of undocumented peoples as they've been theorizing for themselves for a really long time. Like literally to me, them making demands, right? Them being able to speak even though they are deportable, to me that's, those are theories. Um, But it's different where people take them seriously and whether they see them as theories. And to me, those are the, the things that I always have to talk about in class even though people don't take them seriously because maybe it might make them feel uncomfortable but to me, that's that's what it is. Like my mom has been theorizing my whole life, and yeah. I'm gonna acknowledge that. And just because she's not Foucault, and people don't know her all over the world, yeah, or even her critique of certain things like should be taken account. Because Ariana and I were actually like hella trash talking the other day, and we were just like, it's so interesting, and it drives me insane because this happened in, even in the class that I took, the Asian American Studies class, where. I was able to connect, make all these connections because I took, I, I've been taking a lot of immigration courses in, in ethnic studies. We talk a lot about the borders, immigration, immigration law and things like that. And mm-hmm. the class centered around 
Southeast Asians, um, migration, refugees, and asylum, and all that stuff. And I was able to connect mm -hmm. them quickly. But the people and the children of those families that are refugees, are asylum seekers, were having a harder time connecting those things because I was able to connect all of them and talk about them. And then they're like, oh, wow, you're so smart. And I'm like, no, 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 like, I have privilege to be able to, like, my own positionality. I'm like, I have privilege to know how to make these connections. But you actually know way more than I do. And I think you all are mm -hmm. the, the scholars, not me in this topic. Um, and so it, that happens so much in other classes when we're talking about mm -hmm. any topic that isn't our personal lived experience or our family's, you know, past histories um, is that we end up, you know, pr providing platforms for people who shouldn't be speaking about those topics or building okay. careers out of it. And I mean, a ton of people mm -hmm. were in our class who were saying like, oh, no, we, we've, you know, um, that person should be able to, you know, create platform, like even like controversial authors this year. I'm not going to name them because I do not want to give them more publicity than they already have. But it's like right. the people who are the most affected aren't able to write or give such a glamorous, you know, career out of it. It's, it's easier digestible or, you know, it's más, it's más yeah. fácil que la gente, you know, los tome en serio because it's in a way and, and they write in a way that other people understand it because it's not their lived experience. Right. Because we would write it more angrily. You know, we would write it with more emotions because it is a personal, it has affected us such in a personal way that people don't want to see that anger. They don't want to acknowledge the hurt, the pain that we've been put through and depending on like our personal circumstance. Yeah. And I think that's so annoying though because I've have gotten, I got this a lot at the beginning of under, of graduate school where I got the thing of like you're too connected to the issue. You're not gonna be um you're not gonna be able to be objective. And to me, like that's all bullshit. Like there I don't think I don't think that one, research is not objective ever. Like we all have our biases on the way that we write, but like so what like a, a white person is gonna be able to write about, you know, like my community and my people is better than I will because they might be objective, even though I and to me, I just hate this kind of having to justify why I research the way that I, because I come from the community. And I think you're, and I think that you're, you're right, Patricia, the way that, like, why do we favor non-people of color writing about us, right? And, and why do they get professorships, which the other day I was reading about, like, the numbers of who are professors, and it's, like, literally all white people. And I'm just like, why? People that study Latin America are all white. Why is it people that study immigration are white? Like, you know, like I always think about all of these things and the way that I need to be having these conversations. But of course, it means that I have to more laboring always. Yeah, I, I've experienced that myself in um, certain immigration classes where I was, um, the majority of the people in the class were, you know, BIPOC, um, some of them were undocumented, some of them were from mixed set families. Um, and it would be um, white people, white students would be articulating the, our experiences as undocumented immigrants and they would be 
praised about it because they were able to articulate complex issues when we, and whenever a, a person of color, a, a black person or whoever, an immigrant would say the same, a similar thing, a similar statement, then they were not, they were disregarded because that was their experience. It was not as highly praised. So, Yareli, let's get into your research topic of your um, PhD program. What are you thinking of writing, hovering, researching, um, and what was that process like for you to come to this, uh, deciding this topic? Yeah, well, I actually came into the program thinking that I would, well, thinking that I would study something completely different. Um, I proposed to study undocumented peoples as they migrated um, from different parts of Latin America to the U.S. But that changed completely about, probably about two years ago, um, I got my papers, the first stage of papers, um, I was able to go to Sinaloa. And there, of course, I, you know, like hung out in Culiacan with all my family. I reconnected with them. But I was also able to go to Guamuchi to go see my grandma, my paternal grandma. And she took me to my great grandma, um, who lived like literally like a one minute ride from her house. And there I discovered that my great grandma is actually Chinese. Um, and so they're actually um, part Chinese and Chinese Mexican specifically. And so to me, that just came with a lot of like anxiety and essentially just made me question like borders and why do borders exist and um, the way that this part of my identity was kept from me, from me because I wasn't able to go back to Mexico for nearly 14 years. Um, and with that just came a lot of like realization and doing more research about Mexican Chinese peoples and these, and so that led me to wanting to one find out more about my family's history and why they are there in Guamuchil, um, and you know, like how Chinese people got there into Mexico, and so then I think it, it just came with a lot of thinking and making the hard decision of I never want to study that because a lot of kind of like research about immigration is very U.S. exceptionalist, like it only studies the U.S. and what happens in the U.S., but not like other things that are happening in other places. So now I switched to studying Mexico specifically, but studying Chinese Mexicans, specifically in Sinaloa. So as you said, I want to study like Espacio de Sinidad, you know, like places where Chinese Mexicans the way that if they if they hold any like Chinese customs, um, the way that they migrate, why they migrate, why they build communities, why they locate, why they um, are located in certain places, um, and then I also want to talk about specifically about Mexican Chinese women and their roles, their roles in families, and the way that essentially like gender gender roles. And how those affect kind of like identity and family and migration. Um, so it's a lot, but it was really hard kind of like coming with the decision. And I think that this is also like a different kind of a different thing or like a myth in PhD programs that like once you pick something, you have to stick to it. Of course, now you can like scratch and start all over or change, which a lot of people do. Like literally most 
PhD students change their projects at least once. Um, so it just, I don't know. I wanted to study something that would allow me to reconnect with my identity and my family, but something that is really interesting to me. Um, because, of course, a lot of Chinese migration and the way why Chinese migrants went to Mexico was because of the 1800s Chinese Exclusion Act. And so, again, kind of like looking at the role in different like migration processes and why people are going to different places and kind of like settling there. So what are some of the limitations you have faced conducting this research or research in general? Um, can you talk right. about that? Yeah, I mean, most of the limitations are one, right now COVID, I was supposed to be there this summer and just kind of get a preliminary research and see how how I could, how could, I could conduct my research. Um, but of course, I'm not going to be able to do that. So maybe it might be delayed a little bit. Um, but also, just really finding the pockets, because from what I've learned, a lot of the Sinaloa archives on Chinese migrants that they were mysteriously burned. And so actually scholars or archivists there, they don't really have where they were going because they got, you know, mysteriously burned, which is like really suspect, you know. Um, but also a lot of a lot of like Mexican Chinese peoples kind of hide the fact that they are Chinese because of Mexican nationalism and Mexican racism. Um, there are a lot of scholars have written about like anti-Chinismo and the way that Chinese peoples were literally like burned and killed and lynched during the Mexican Revolution because they were into this idea of mestizaje and coming from this indigenous background. But that meant that anything that strayed away from this indigenous like perception of Mexican nationalism that had to be eliminated and Chinese definitely became the target for that. So um, when I was talking to my, to my bisabuela, my great grandma, she would tell she told me that she has no pictures. She has no documentation. She has nothing that would connect her to being Chinese, even though like, Physically, she looks very much Chinese, but she's like, no, I will never tell anyone because what if, what if like violence happens all over? Like, what if we're targets? And then what I've learned also is that specifically in Sinaloa, people don't study Sinaloa because there's no archives, but because Chinese Mexicanos, like they're dispersed everywhere. So there isn't really like communities like how you wouldn't see in like the FA or um, in Sonora or definitely Mexicali and places like that. There isn't like pockets of community like Chinatowns. Um, Sinaloa doesn't have that. Chinese, Mexican, like communities and families, they're dispersed everywhere. There isn't really anywhere where they are or like towns where they settle. So those are definitely going to be really tough for me to find out. Um, but I definitely, like, I got to start with my family and then move from there and see the way that, one, you know, lots of states, how they talk about Chinese people, but also if I can draw from other pockets of research to get at what I want to get at. So thank you for sharing about that and, and your experience thus far and that discovery that must be really cool to now feel an extra connection, you know, an, an extra, not just to your Mexican culture and background, you're bringing a different lens and a insight into this subculture that exists in Mexico, but is often, you know, not acknowledged. So 
there has been a lot of controversy with regards to ethics at Harvard and whether or not it exists. Um, according to a Crimson article on April 16, 2020, they cite Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Claudine Gate, who wrote in an email that the Harvard Ethnic Studies Coalition, a student and alumni group demanding the university uh, to establish an ethnic studies program, that she had to make the very difficult and frankly heartbreaking decision, end quote, to suspend the search after the search committee anonymously, anonymously agreed that candidates would no longer be able to get, best present their work and that Harvard affiliates would be less able to engage with them after the university's transition to online classes and remote work. So um, Gay announced in, in June 2019 that she would hire two four senior faculty who specialize in Asian American, Latinx, and Muslim studies by the end of the 2019-2020 academic year. Um, apparently two candidates had already visited Harvard to give talks and meet with faculty and students, and nine more were scheduled to visit later in the spring. Um, she notes that um, she has not set a timeline for the resumption of the faculty search, but assured that the coalition, um, that the FAST is still continuing its work to advance ethnic studies at Harvard. Um, she mentions that, in quote, uh, conversations among the faculty continue, uh, end quote, she wrote, um, but that the formal search process is not continuing at this time. So what are your thoughts around this decision and the ongoing battle um, around ethnic studies um, that has existed, I, to my understanding, for the past 30 years at Harvard? Yeah, well, I, the, yeah the, the battle for ethnic studies at Harvard has been around for probably almost 50 years, if not over 50 years. Um, I mean, to me, one... Uh, the decision to hire those three to four faculty who specialize in ethnic studies, hmm. it was because, like, Prof. Lorja Garcia-Peña, she was in my tenure, and so that was just kind of like a band-aid solution to getting faculty to come and teach ethnic studies, even though she was, one, the best mentor, and she was honestly, like, the only person who did real ethnic studies at Harvard, but, like, why are we hiring other people if we, if we can't even retain professors of color, especially her, because, one, she she helped remove the Latinx studies concentration, like, the secondary field, and then, one, her book, Borges of Dominicanidad, was a success, and it is an amazing, like, foundational text for Dominican studies and diaspora. Um, so to me, to, and, it, and it was also, so to me, like the search for ethnic studies professors was because people were protesting and people were pissed that, that Dr. Garcia Peña didn't get tenure. Um, and then why are we going to have faculty come if we're not going to be able to retain them? Like to me, to me, that doesn't make sense. But I think Studies Coalition, which is, essentially an undergrad-ran group, they were the ones that were making really difficult demands um, about, one, what should an ethnic studies scholar at Harvard look like? Um, because people that they, the two people that they brought to campus, the people that they brought to campus, some of us thought that they didn't, they weren't really ethnic studies scholars because 
for a lot of us, at least being interdisciplinary, um, like being truly interdisciplinary and like just being able to be a mentor and have, and to talk about ethnic studies as a field, right? And to me, the scholars that came, they were literally in history and English and sociology. And they didn't do any work outside of those disciplines. And to us, that was already kind of like a red mark of not doing it. And to, of course, COVID delayed that. But to me, like, we need to be having tougher conversations about, one, I remember that they had this professor um, who was really problematic because he was a largest former mentor. And he came to interview to get her job, essentially. And a lot of us were really upset because, like, how can you be a true ally and how can you be upset about Lorja being denied tenure and you're still coming to campus and interviewing? Like, to me, that just didn't make sense how you would do that, having been her faculty advisor at school and then being a white man that studies Afro-Latinx people. And so to me, I was like, really, do we really want another white person to teach ethnic studies? No, that doesn't make sense to me. And so definitely it goes, it goes way past that. And I think them, I mean, COVID was in a sense like good for Harvard because it meant that people are not on campus and they can't keep demanding that many things when you are not on campus and being visible, which the the Harvard Ethnic Studies Coalition did. Like they were literally on op-eds they had signatures, they had petitions, they um, were on newspapers, and they were getting a lot of attention because the denial of tenure for Dr. Garcia Peña, it outreached a lot of people. And you, I don't know if y'all saw it, but it became like huge stories for a really long time because one, she has a, a lot of advisors and she, has, she mentors a lot of the people of color at Harvard, which is not a lot. Um, and she's one of the few people that has like real interdisciplinary classes, like she's the only person that does it. And also because literally the presence of her, her and her students, they got called on the police a lot for just like being out there and performing and performing poetry and just literally being there and scare people. Um, and then a lot of kind of like the racism that she faced on campus that was not addressed by administration. And so we do, we see it again and again, the perpetuation of administration of like the people committing violence against people of color and specifically women of color and then not doing anything. So the, these calls for ethnic studies have been going on for a really, really long time. And I don't know that Harvard is really, really... Is really willing to like do something about it because like you know how they, they say that about diversity and how they want diverse students, but like there are no classes about us in people of color at Harvard. They're like very rare. Yeah. And do you have you heard about any updates since then? No. And I think that that's the worst part of how her denial has been very like it's it's just like so mystical like we don't know what happened because her department romances language is in literature they like unanimously approved there but someone at the top denied it but we don't know where and so that's why the that's why people are asking for transparency and to really say why they denied her but they don't 
they don't want to do that. And I don't think they're going to do that. Um, so I do think, like, unfortunately, Dr. Garcia Peña is going to go to another institution. Um, and so that means that a lot of us are an advisor. Like, I literally came here to study with her because I think her research is badass. And I think her as a person, she's badass and she's not... And she's down to, like, tell the truth and and, and tell different histories that, and call out, like, white supremacy and anti-blackness and racism and, like, how shitty Harvard can be sometimes and is. Yeah. But, you know, those things usually are not are not good to be done before you get that tenure because then they'll use that against you. Well, in either way, like any step of the way of uh, someone trying to get tenure or has tenure, it doesn't matter because what it, that that's the thing that they try to threaten a lot of new faculty is don't do this before tenure. But in reality, the market yeah, yeah. keeps getting bigger, right? Because then now it's not tenure that you're worried about. Now it's your promotion. Mm-hmm. Now it's your you know, publishing, um, companies. Now it's your course load. Now it's your fellowship. Like it's always, you know, trying to use all these methods of silencing and making, making it so that people don't do what your, what your faculty mentor is doing right now. And the fact that they haven't given you a a response, that is like some level one-on-one shit of violence of like not providing an answer, not you know, mysteriously somehow it's now no longer trending. So they don't feel like accountable to say anything or to provide an explanation. That's what they do. They don't provide an explanation because they don't really have one. And so what does this country do in terms of legal stuff? Don't say anything or else you're going to be, that's going to be used against you. So that's their method is to, you know, not provide anything, not say anything make it until people are exhausted. And then what happens is that they know that your professor is on a time clock, so they're going to start moving and going somewhere else. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think definitely Harvard has that problem of not retaining one professors of color, um, but also, like, badass scholars who are doing really innovative, innovative and cutting-edge work. It's a loss for Harvard and for the students, like you said, like you, who who wanted to do research with her, and are there you're at Harvard because you wanted to work with her. Yeah. Oh well. Um, well, thank you for sharing your your insight on that, and and it's definitely something that we need to continue elevating because, like you said, with COVID, everyone is off campus and are left in the dark and there's no pressure no longer any more pressure to to hold them accountable um and so as we're getting ready to to conclude um and as as you're entering your what what year are you entering now Uh, i'm going to enter my third year your third year how do you feel about that and what are you um how do you feel about being would you say halfway done yeah, I mean, I have to finish this year, and then I'll be halfway done. Um, I honestly feel awesome because after I have two more years of teaching, and then I could leave campus. Like, I no longer have to be in Boston and at Harvard, which is amazing, um, because then I can just do my 
research independently and hopefully being able to and being privileged to go back to Mexico um, and Sinaloa and do my research there by actually engaging and talking with communities. Um, so I feel awesome that I'm almost there and that I'm done with classwork and I no longer have to take classes ever again. Um, but yeah, I mean, it feels a little uncertain, but I know that I'm making strides to what I really want to study and then really finding myself as a scholar and just being like, like, fuck it, you know, like I'm going to do my research the way that I want to do it. Um, and like, it doesn't matter what, what other people are doing. I just want to do research that is different, that is me, and that kind of, that draws from everything that I've learned from all types of people. And what would you say um, are some takeaways from your experience going through the application process, being in the program, taking classes, your exams? What are some highlights of your experience? Yeah, I would say... Go where, go to where you feel supported. Definitely reach out to different professors and the programs that you might be applying to um, to see their level of commitment and whether they are true mentors that will be with you along the way. I feel like that's one of the things that I do and that that I personally didn't do enough of. Um, but I have been lucky to to have found people literally all over the nation who are willing to work with me and are able to give me like guidance and mentorship through a process that I had no idea about. Um, I don't know, like if you really, if you think that you might want to do a PhD, definitely do your research, do your research um, in picking the department where you might want to go, um, talking to grad students in those departments, because I feel like they are the ones that are going to be the most honest about what the program is like, about what kind of like campus climate is, about whether it's competitive, the way people perform, the approaches to scholar, to research. Um, so definitely do, do your research about all of that and don't be afraid to kind of change and evolve. Because um, I, I think that I was afraid that like me wanting to study Mexico would just completely re-derail what I've been thinking about, but I think, like, taking that chance really helped me learn a lot about myself, and, you know, like, I felt uncomfortable for a while, but then I became more comfortable with what I was doing, and I, but it has to do, right, like, with my own personal journey as well. How would you gauge some, uh, a professor's commitment? Ask them. I, I ask them, like, don't be afraid to be blunt about it. Like, do, can you take graduate students? How many can you take? Um, what is your level of mentorship? Like, literally ask all of those questions. And some people are intimidated by professors, which, you know, I would do, but, like, don't be afraid to send them an email and be like, I am prospectively applying to this program. Can I talk to you? Or can we correspond through email? Right? And to me, I did that. And I was able to ask them those questions. Um, and then also, definitely grad students are key here. Because sometimes, you know, professors want to sell you on the program and for you to go there. Um, but graduate students are sometimes, they don't care. And they're going to be brutally honest about, yes, that professor is good. Like, no, that professor is no good. And I think that is the main reason um, why I picked American Studies. It was because the grad students there were super honest with me about what the program meant. And so I went there 
like not being not being surprised by anything really um because they gave me the truth about the program and what it was about and then harvard as an institution and then the professors that were in there yeah and i think it's important to also like be very direct and um ask the person like the kind of level of support that you'll need so if it's Mm -hmm. a lot of support just trying to see like how you know questions or anything related to the ways that faculty could support you or even bluntly saying like I'm a first generation college student navigating I know xyz I don't know this and this Mm -hmm. or I really don't know where to start asking those questions just because you kind of gauge the kind of level of support that you need and the person, if that's the right person, or are they giving you the runaround? I think it's not that, I don't know how it is with other, you know, by BI POCs, but in my experience, it's taken a while to really find the right fit for myself in every, you know, aspect of, but it's easy, but it's important for you to still network and reach out to them just because it'll, it'll give you a sense of, you know, gauging what you need, what you don't, what other institutions offer that maybe this other one doesn't, um, or trying to ask, you know, like, if this is possible. Because sometimes even the faculty who might be supportive just may not know that they need to support students in that particular way. So um, how does your family feel about all that you have accomplished? I mean, going back to what Patricia was saying at the beginning and about code switching, that that really that really hits me really hard because sometimes, like, I have trouble telling my family what I do and what I study. So sometimes I have to find, like, weird ways to tell them, like, what I study. Um, so they're happy, definitely, of where I am and the things that I'm doing and just, like, being independent. Um but I feel like I can't. I can't always just tell them what I do because they might not understand. And other, like I don't know the technical terms in Spanish of so just being able to say I studied this and then this way. So I just try to keep them in the loop about like my different stages. Um, like oh, I just did my exam, so they knew what that meant. Um, and and then they understand that I'm gonna start teaching. Though they might not understand like the whole TF thing of like being a TA right for a class. But they're happy, and they know that that at the end I'm gonna be a doctora, so they're really happy about that. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's a lot of kind of like negotiating how I tell, and in being being really able to be honest about what I do, and knowing how to put it across as well. And what about your husband? He is super excited. So right now he's a he's a law student at Boston University School of Law, and he's doing amazing. He's going into his second year. Um, he wants to be he wants to do public interest work, which is amazing, and hopefully either in the criminal justice system or immigration attorney. And I mean, he's really excited for me. Um, he really told me he's the one that really encouraged me to go to Harvard and be out of my comfort zone. Um, and just like really push myself in the in the places and the people that I've met. So he said he's definitely been been my backbone in all of this. So shout out to Julian, my husband. <laughs> and to close us off, um, Yareli, any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? Any any la- uh, last message? Um, 
definitely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a resource is for people who are looking to, like, do a PhD in the humanities and social sciences, definitely. I can be a resource. I try to give back because def- because along the way, I got a lot of help from other grad students and also my amazing mentors at UC Irvine. So I definitely want to give back. Um, and just make like you study what you want to study and the way that you want to study it and don't compromise for anyone. Um, because at the end of the day, this is your project. It's a grueling five to seven years and you want to make the most of it and be happy with the end product. So... I know there's some people who are kind of like stuck in the programs and don't feel happy, but like don't compromise. Like do what you want to do if you want to change in the middle of it. Like I did, like change because like it's your research and it's gonna take a really long time, like years and years. Um, and it'll just you know like make you feel better. Like I definitely feel better and I feel more passionate about my research now that I switched and I was able to discuss it with mentors and other students about the leap that I wanted to make, which I was really afraid for. Um, But I knew that I wanted to kind of like use different theories, use different ways of learning and teaching um, and how to like be good with myself and what I want to do. Because that's going to help you along the way to become, like, the best professor, the best the, the best scholar, best mentor that you can be. Awesome. Thank you so much, Arely, for joining us today, for your time and for your insight. Again, you are kicking butt and speaking up, which we need. And I hope, I wish you the best of luck. Patricia and I both wish you the best of luck uh, in your program. And I can't wait to see you graduate in a few years. I know, and thank you both. Muchas gracias, Patricia Ariana, for inviting me and for letting me just be me and talking about, you know, like the hardships that happen. But I'm happy for y'all and your podcast and that y'all are doing badass work and talking about, you know, like the real work as practitioners, practitioners, students, and scholars. Thank you so much. And and hopefully within a few years, we check back in and you can tell us more, more chisme and also more of your research finding and just your own personal journey. I know that would be so amazing. So today's BIPOC business shout out is um, these amazing toys by Austin Nature Works. Um, They're made out of wood. And a little bit about her and her work. They've had a, f- a few opportunities to discover the natural world. And as an educator, they've been inspired to create toys that would excite children and spark their interest in nature so that they may develop a mindful relationship with our earth. Austin Nature Works has curated a line of mindful toys inspired by elements of nature, imaginative play, Montessori, and Reggio learning methods. All of their toys are handcrafted with love in Austin, Texas. They are tested safe for children and made with eco-friendly materials. They're dedicated to creating safe, eco-friendly toys using sustainable materials. So check them out at austinnatureworks.com. Okay, well, um, thank you everyone for tuning in to today's episode. Bye. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com 
and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash App us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.